Welcome to Subject to Interpretation, a podcast which takes us deep into the topics that matter to professional interpreters. Welcome. Today we're going to take a look at interpreting from the perspective of a dual practitioner, an interpreter who is also a lawyer. We'll talk about the intersection between spoken language and American Sign Language interpreting and how both groups can come together to further professionalize the industry. Our guest today is Paul Panuski. He's an attorney, as well as an American Sign Language interpreter with various national certifications, including education, legal. Now, he's been an interpreter for almost 15 years, and during that time, he has also participated in language access advocacy. He has a background in psychology, and he's also a registered neutral. So welcome, Paul. Hi. Thanks, Brianna. Thanks for having me. Let's start with ASL and spoken language interpreting. Both kinds of interpreters do the same thing. That is, they use language to assist parties in communication with one another. Is that where the comparison ends? I don't think that's where the comparison ends, but there certainly are a lot of differences. I think in general, uh, spoken language interpreters and sign language interpreters, we typically find ourselves or think of ourselves as completely separate with no overlap at all. Um, at, at its foundation, we do the same thing. Like you said, we help two people who speak different languages uh, communicate with each other. Uh, and a lot of our ethics are the same. But I would say that with sign language, there's a deep rooted cultural aspect um, that I think is present in spoken language, but I think is more present in sign language interpreting. So tell me a little bit about the cultural aspects. Is it, for example, is it sufficient to know ASL in order to, let's say, train to become an interpreter? Is there more than that? So um, it's, it's not sufficient to just know American Sign Language to be able to be an interpreter that interprets between American Sign Language and another language, English. Um, but I would say that it's, a, it's sufficient to start your training because the training is what's really important. Uh, the training on, like I said, ethics, um, but more importantly, cultural aspects. Uh, maybe what's different between sign language interpreting and spoken language interpreting is that um, the qualification or the, the requirement for a person who needs uh, an interpreter who is deaf or hard of hearing isn't the same for someone who speaks Spanish or speaks French. You know, if someone speaks Spanish or speaks French, you get them a Spanish or French interpreter. Maybe there's a dialect issue uh, that you want to make sure you're getting the right Spanish interpreter or the right French interpreter. But when it comes to a person who shows up to a, a doctor's appointment or shows up to court who's deaf or hard of hearing, they might not speak sign language at all. They might be deaf or hard of hearing and use CART services, which is you know, English transcriptions, or they might use sign language, but they might use an English-based sign language approach, or they may use a more structural American sign language approach. So even the variations in the languages, you might see one interpreter signing, moving their hands around, but the, gra the grammar could be different. The sign choices could be vastly different. Walk us through a little bit of the process of becoming a certified American Sign Language interpreter. And I understand that there are different categories. And you, um, as opposed to spoken language interpreters, you guys have a generalist category. And then you have subspecializations. How does that work? So um, 
so we do start with a generalist. There, there's one exception, which is the educational certification. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of debate in the field that, that people think you should have a generalist before having any specialty, including education. Uh, but education is one specialized certificate that you can have without having a generalist. But the way it starts to, for a generalist, or the way it should start for most people, uh, is that you should come to some tour, some form of training program with a base understanding of the language. If you don't have any base understanding of the language, there are college classes that you can take, uh, ASL 1, you need to start there, uh, ASL 1, ASL 2, ASL 3. Hopefully you go all the way through ASL 6, but hopefully you continue learning ASL your entire life. Um, but you learn, um, you know, you take deaf culture classes, you learn the language, you learn the vocabulary, but then you learn the culture. Uh, you learn the, the oppression that deaf people have suffered, you know, over the course of history. Um, you go through your classes, you take interpreter training, uh, and now the Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf requires that you have a four-year degree. It doesn't have to be in sign language interpretation, uh, but they do require that you have a four-year degree. Then you study, you take a, a written test and a performance test. And if you pass, you get a generalist certification. Um, and I think, and it's the same process for the specialties as well. I think one thing that people need to keep in mind is that getting certified, whether it's generalist, education, even legal, that is your entry level into the field and into the profession. Uh, you know, there are over 10,000 nationally certified generalist sign language interpreters, there's under 400 that have an SCL, which is the legal certification that I have. Uh, and a lot of people think that you have the legal certification, you're this legal interpreting God, and it's entry level. It's just so that you're proficient to do it. And then you continue to train and you continue to gain experience, which makes you a better interpreter. Now, especially interpreting in court, there's lots of, um, well, obviously it's a high risk scenario for defendants, but there's lots of words in the court jargon that can be difficult for an untrained interpreter. I think you and I spoke about the term um, prison, jail, lockup, and a few others that really, really um, have to be interpreted very carefully because otherwise they create more confusion than what they resolve. Yes, that's, that's very true. Uh, you know, one thing that's interesting, because you did want to talk about some of the differences, I think for the most part, spoken language interpreters, when they're going to a court setting, uh, it, is, it is mostly either the defendant or the plaintiff. You know, it's a, it's a party to the case that's involved. Uh, sign language interpreters have a little bit of an expansion. You know, you and I have talked about this in Georgia, where sign language interpreters might be called for jury duty. Uh, because exclusion of a deaf person because they don't speak English would be a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, so sign language interpreters also interpret jury duty. So yes, there's uh, a lot of people that are affected by the interpreter, even a defendant who isn't the deaf person, or there's not a deaf person to the party uh, or to the, to the case. If the deaf person's on the jury, the skill of that interpreter will affect someone who doesn't know any deaf people or has no relation to any deaf people. Um, and it is very true that those specific words, uh, I actually saw you say this, you and I have said this a lot in one of your other podcasts, uh, you have to know four languages to be a court interpreter. Uh, you have to know your source and target languages, but then you have to know legalese in both your source language and your target language. Excellent. So what about when you, you know, you add 
the situation that we're in right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, and you make it impossible for sign language interpreters to go to court and they have to work remotely. How does that affect the interaction between the deaf or hard of hearing um, defendant or user of services and the communication? So I think that situation and what COVID has brought to light, um, aside from general disparities among, uh, you know, society where we have high income, low income, people who don't have access to broadband, high speed internet, you know, obviously those things have been brought to light by this, but it also focuses a lot on the big differences between spoken language and sign language. Um, so sign language interpreting, um, American Sign Language interpreters have been using video remote interpreting in some fashion for a really long time. Uh, it's how deaf people call and order a pizza or call their doctor, make appointments, call their friends, uh, have very personal conversations where we would have them over the phone. The deaf person or the hard of hearing person will use a video relay service and they will call an interpreter in a cubicle uh, and that interpreter will have a headset to call the hearing person. So deaf people have been using the service for a long time, which is one, a huge benefit. It's not a learning curve that they have to, you know, deal with how does technology, you know, how, do, how does the camera work? How do I set it up, make sure it all works? But it also comes with a big negative because deaf people have been using this service for so long and this technology for so long in a much more relaxed manner. Uh, you know, I remember I, I was in the army for a while and I remember uh, a phrase which was familiarity breeds contempt. You know, just the, the more you are familiar with a person or the more you're familiar with something, the, the more you take it for granted, but also the more relaxed and comfortable you are with or you use the service. So, you know, deaf people call and they order a pizza. They don't dress, <laughs> dress up in their Sunday best to call and order a pizza or call and make a doctor's appointment. You know, it's just like I, if I'm making a phone call, I'm wearing my pajamas. Nobody's looking at me. Um, you know, deaf people know the interpreter is looking, but it's a, it's, it's the culture. It's what we're grown accustomed to. That is a hard change when now you tell a deaf person the same exact service that you've been using for so long that you are very comfortable with and that you call, it's, it's you know, usually set up in either in your living room or maybe your desk, but sometimes in your bedroom with your bedroom TV, uh, you know, so you're sitting on the bed. Um, you now have to do this, but this is now in court and other people are also now on the video. Um, and it also creates a huge distraction because ASL is so visual. When I'm standing in the courtroom and I'm standing up at the front, you know, I can see the entire courtroom. And if somebody, if, you know, if two parties are deaf and somebody starts signing, I can see that and I can shift my gaze. When I have 12 zoom squares, um, you know, I either see all of them at once, which means everybody's really small, or I pin one deaf person and then I don't see anybody else. And deaf people struggle with that as well because when I'm interpreting for a hearing person, the deaf person still wants to maintain eye contact with the hearing speaker. And that's very difficult when they wanna see me, but the hearing speaker is a, you know, the, the corner zoom over there and I'm down here in this corner zoom. Uh, so it, does, it, it has a benefit that they've been familiar with using it, but it does create a lot more problems. Now, ASL or American Sign Language and 
is mandated, the provision of an American Sign Language interpreter is mandated by the American Disabilities Act, which you alluded to earlier. And the provision of a spoken language interpreter is mandated by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and other regulation. And although they are different in how they're executed, they take place in the similar settings. So what do you think about having both ASL and spoken language interpreters regulated by the same entity, at least for legal interpreting purposes? So I think that's really important. Um, and, and just a, a quick clarification, it is very complicated. Um, you know, the American with Disabilities Act it requires a reasonable accommodation, and that is a ongoing struggle. Um, it is; it doesn't necessarily require an interpreter, um, okay. which is a huge problem because obviously an interpreter is the only thing that's reasonable. But because it's not so clear, you still have people using pen and paper, you know, using pictures and trying other things. Um, so it's 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 not so clear. But to the main question of regulated together, uh, that would be. I mean, I, I don't understand why we weren't regulated together from the beginning. Um, but I think that goes back to what you and I, you know, what I just said is that for a long time, spoken language interpreters and American Sign Language or any sign language interpreters have viewed themselves in separate worlds, in separate camps. Uh, and then just from there, uh, the division grew further apart. It's kind of like if you're laying a tile floor, you're a little off right here. By the time you get to the other side of the room, you're, you're way off. Um, and I think we are very far apart when we should be working together. And I think having one organization, uh, specifically if we're talking courts, uh, the administrative office of the courts regulating uh, all court interpreters would be ideal. So Paul, we talk a lot about training of interpreters, but we don't really talk about training other people in the use of interpreters. And I wonder whether if we did more of that, we might actually get to the point where in general, it would be understood that there should be a standard, a national standard for all interpreters. What do you think? That's a really interesting point. Um, so first of all, I completely agree that we really need to train the end users and not just the people who need the interpreter, but the people who are booking the interpreter, the people who are, you know, responsible for coordinating the interpreter. Um, a lot of times, and especially, you know, I'm sure you're, you, this happens to you a lot. Um, you know, you get called from a court and it's like, Hey, are you available to interpret a hearing on this day at this time? Who, who are the parties? What, the, what is the hearing? What's going on? How long is it going to, you know, there's so many questions, um, you know, even, especially as an attorney, but even interpreters need to be more aware of conflicts that they might have with parties. If they interpret one, you know, one part of a, of a trial or one part of an action, they might not be able to interpret subsequent parts of that action. Uh, so having the court administrators come to the interpreters prepared and armed with the information uh, because it's not as easy as just I ask those questions well you know who are the parties what kind of case is it is, is anybody represented because when I do I'm normally wet, met with I don't know any of these answers I didn't know I had to know any of these answers so I'll call you back uh, in a couple of days when I get all this information um, so I think that that would be really really important and then yes I think that by doing that by having those people armed with what they need to, to get qualified interpreters, I think we will have a better, in general, a better ability to provide qualified interpreters. Because as of right now, that lack of knowledge from the people booking the interpreters, even sadly to say some agencies who are booking interpreters, 
with that lack of knowledge, they're also just getting somebody who says they're an interpreter, right? Somebody's just like, hey, are you an interpreter? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Here, can you come and do this? Because they, they're not armed with what the interpreter needs to know, and they're not armed with the differences in interpreters. Now, you're in a unique position because in addition to having been an American Sign Language interpreter for almost 15 years, you also decided to go to law school. So if I were in your situation, I think that when I start law school, I would see law school through the eyes of the interpreter because that would have been my framework. And as I move through law school, then perhaps my perspective changes. And as I'm focusing on the law and now I start to see the interpreter through the eyes of a lawyer. Um, what do you think about that? It, do, this, does Was your experience like that in any way of a blending of the two? I think that I think it actually was. It, it was very much, you know, I start law school and I'm coming at it. And I think uh, like most people who go to law school later in life and, and start, I went to law school part time, uh, part time students, you, you come at it with uh, a different set of experiences, a different set of life experiences that you bring to law school. Uh, and that that shapes your view. Um, what I think is interesting is, while yes, I started law school with a, an interpreter um, point of view. Uh, and then that shifted to seeing the world and seeing law school through an attorney um, point of view, they're not really that different. Um, you know, the, the jobs are very similar. I, I would say there's one drastic difference, which was I've always wanted to go to law school. It was kind of a long time coming. Uh, but the one drastic difference, which I'm sure every interpreter watching let this me guess, will Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to actually say something, um, <laughs> to have, have a point in there, because sometimes, you know, we, we are responsible to interpret the message uh, faithfully to the people rendering it. And sometimes, you know, you just sit there and we all have our own thoughts about this message that's coming across. Um, so yeah, the ability to actually advocate and to have a voice in the conversation uh, is the huge difference. Um, but I will, I will say that the similarities are, um, are still pretty ingrained in the two jobs. Um, you know, being an interpreter, um, in fact, my, my, my firm's logo is solutions through communication because it, it's all about communication. You know, winning your case for your client, even if, you know, sometimes a settlement is the best win, a settlement or winning a trial, it's all about communication and understanding how language works and how we use language is the key to both jobs. As far as um, the knowledge that you now have as an attorney, have you have you changed your perspective of the availability of language access services or, or do you now understand it a little differently? Um, I think, I think in being in a unique position of being specifically an American Sign Language interpreter for the deaf and hard of hearing, I don't think it's changed that much because I've always been very well aware of the struggles uh, that the deaf and hard of hearing culture have when it comes to language access. Um, you know, specifically, I, I think it's just in general how we look at the world. You and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, you know, if you're a hearing person and you, and you have a child who's a hearing child, that doctor will probably encourage you not all, but many will encourage you or people will encourage you, teach your baby sign language. They can learn to <laughs> sign before they can, they can learn to talk. They can learn to move their hands before they can learn to control their vocal cords. Teach your baby sign language, you know, teach them more and, and milk and cookie. And it's great. And, you know, it alleviates frustration because that's why babies cry because they want something that they can't tell you. Um, and it, it's a, it's a great point and it's a true point. But if you're a 
deaf person and you have a deaf child, or if you're a hearing person and you have a hearing child, that advice usually isn't the same. In fact, most, most professionals then, not all, but many professionals will actually say, don't teach your child sign language because they feel that it will impact their ability to learn English later on, uh, which is not true. And in fact, it's the opposite because if you have a foundation in language, it's much easier to learn a second language than it is to struggle with your first language and then try and learn a second. Um, but yeah, the, the language access has been a struggle. So I don't think it's changed. I think it's just uh, intensified. Now, I'd like your explanation as an attorney slash interpreter as to why the interpreter should not dumb down or explain things that are being said that the interpreter thinks um, might not be understood in the way they were originally said. So that, that's a really good point. That's something that I have been talking about for a very long time. Since I first became an interpreter, um, I, I noticed that there were there were different models that interpreters followed. There were some interpreters that were more faithful to the message, and that also includes the register of that message. And then there were some interpreters that were more focused on the, the understanding of the message and gave no credence to the register at all. Mm. Um, I, I think in most things in life, uh, extremes are never the answer. There's always got to be, you know, the, the middle pendulum swing, is, you know, the middle is where we go. Um, I think, though, the problem with completely ignoring register is it actually sets both people up for failure later on. Uh, so what do I mean by that? So, you know, I'm an attorney and if I'm a bad attorney, then I'm going to explain things to my client in a way that they can't understand. And I'm talking about people who speak the same language, right? We've all had doctors, lawyers, plumbers, electricians, every, people who explain things and they're using their everyday jargon that I'm not familiar with as, as the customer. I, I'm not familiar with these terms. I need you to explain it to me in layman's terms, right. but I can at least do that. When I'm the customer and the doctor, the lawyer, the plumber explain something to me in, in terms that I don't understand, I can let them know that, which does a couple things. It lets me as the consumer advocate for myself. And it reminds that professional to use layman's terms in general with other clients. When an interpreter is in the middle and that professional is using specific technical jargon and the interpreter is the one that's changing it to layman's terms, the problems that it's causing is the, the consumer doesn't know that that's even happening. They think that this person's a great, doing a great job of explaining it. They're explaining it in layman's terms. The professional doesn't know that the consumer or the other person doesn't know those specific jargon terms. So then later with another interpreter, they're still going to continue to use those. If that new interpreter doesn't know what they mean and has to ask for explanation, person might be like, well, I don't understand. They, they understood everything I said last time. I'm using the same terminology. Uh, specifically when it comes to sign language, a lot of people default to English. This is a big difference between sign language and spoken language, right? If you have a, a spoken language interpreter from English professional to Spanish consumer, and then the next meeting, you don't have that Spanish language interpreter there. The spoken language professional doesn't give writing English words down a try, right? They're not like, oh, I don't have an interpreter. Let's, let's just try writing in English. That, that doesn't work that way. That is a phenomenon that happens a lot with sign language interpreters. We have an interpreter the first meeting. And then for whatever reason, you know, maybe a consumer just shows up or maybe uh, the interpreter gets sick or they forget to book somebody. Instead of rescheduling, they're like, hey, you know what? I mean, it's you're deaf. It's not a different language. Let's just write English because they don't understand it's a different language. So they start writing English words down. 
and they're using those big terms that they use the first time because the interpreter did not transmit those words at the proper register and give the parties an opportunity to work that stuff out. So it seems to me like that interferes with the communicative autonomy that the um, person receiving the services has. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's and it, it creates a, a learned helplessness. Um, it, they don't even you know the the consumer or the person on the other end doesn't know that that's happening, and then that that creates a dependency on the interpreter, which obviously dependency doesn't go really well with autonomy. Absolutely. Now, you and I um, have been involved recently in a very interesting project um, that was helping to expand the options for court reopening here in the state of Georgia. And um, we managed to get the interpreter, interpreting related issues included in that task force. Why did you agree to participate? Uh, aside from you, um, I mean, so, I mean, you, you obviously know this story is that, and, and it's a struggle that we have, they were setting up this task force doing all these things in order to, you know, make sure that the, the courts could, could ha- handle business during the closures, uh, that they could reopen safely. Um, and obviously, when you are going to interact with the court, when you're going to have access to justice, communication is the most important part of that. Um, Most people speaking the same language, because they speak the same language, the concept that communication is vital to interacting with the court doesn't come up. So a lot of people, it's just not on their radar and it just gets overlooked. Uh, You know, so when we started working together to write a letter um, to the task force to have interpreters um, included, uh, that kind of snowballed into being involved and, and and making sure that all of the aspects that the COVID task force looked at took communication and language access into consideration. Um, You know, you have to have different safety guidelines when it comes to communication. You can't just say, okay, everybody wear a mask um, because that's gonna interfere with people being able to understand each other. And it's interesting because most of the task force knew that when it came to language, just in general, you have something covering your mouth, your voice is a little bit more muffled, it's harder to understand. Add now to that a two people involved in the process, muffled, and a transition from one language to another. Um, you know, we explore different options, face masks versus face shields, especially when it comes to sign language interpreter, where a lot of grammar is on your face. So if you're a sign language interpreter, or if you're deaf or hard of hearing and you use sign language to communicate, you're not really worried about the mask muffling sound, but a mask does block the grammatical facial expressions that occur. So as far as um, the results of that, um, that task force, I, I, I recall that one of the main focus, foci, <laughs> one of, the, men, one of the, the main ideas was to provide guidelines for in-person interpreting, remote interpreting, and also hybrid. Yeah, I think the hybrid was the most difficult. Um, I think it's really easy, you know, when we were coming up with guidelines for in-person, obviously, you know, we both, and and something I thought that was really good that we did was that we went out and we also had, uh, you know, small town halls with people, um, you know, the end users to see what things they thought of that would help them, you know, interact with the justice system. Um, you know, but I think it was pretty, pretty straightforward to, you know, use a face shield so that you can see uh, facial expressions better, um, you know, face masks in these situations, uh, you know, for spoken language interpreter using technology, you know, having the interpreter be able to sit at a different table and use headsets and earpieces, 
so that there's, you know, social distancing or physical distancing. You know, I think those were pretty straightforward when it came to the remote interpreting. Again, pretty straightforward. Doesn't straightforward doesn't mean that was easy and we should do it, but you know, straightforward is in what the problems are something I alluded to earlier, you know, you're talking to one person, the deaf person is watching one hearing person, that hearing person's in one small corner, but the interpreter's in a different corner or the interpreter having to figure out which person is talking. Uh, in sign language, this is very interesting. If I'm in a courtroom and, or if I'm in any room in a business meeting and there's a round table and I'm interpreting for all of the hearing people speaking, when a hearing person starts speaking, I'll typically, you know, uh, make eye contact, gesture, point at that person so that the deaf person knows who's speaking at the time. That's really difficult because the 12 squares on my screen aren't the same order as the 12 squ squares on the deaf person's screen. So I can't say uh, that square. I mean, first of all, I don't even know where that square is pointing to that you're looking at right now. Um, so that, that, that's very difficult. But when it came to the hybrid approach, that created a lot more problems because, you know, you have situations where which people are going to be in person and which people are going to be remote. Um, having the interpreter uh, and the non-English speaking person uh, not in the same situation, not in the same physical location would be fine and uh, assuming all of those other issues that with remote interpreting, but would be okay as long as the non-English speaking person wasn't actually in a location with hearing English speaking people, because just in general, I mean, we see this when we're live in person, um, especially with deaf people, the eye contact issue, right? Mm -hmm. So deaf people looking at the interpreter, I've actually seen people, hey, look, look at me, I'm, I'm, you have to look at me when I'm talking to you. That doesn't work out too well because they have to look at the interpreter. And normally we try to position ourselves so that they can, you know, the consumer can look at the hearing person who's speaking while we're interpreting. That's not going to happen very well if the deaf person is in the room with the hearing people and just the interpreters on the TV. Um, and that is something that deaf people have struggled with even, you know, well before COVID, uh, you know, doctors try to do that. Medical facilities do that. They bring in a TV on a wheelie cart. Remember when we were in school, that was like the best thing when the teacher wheeled in the TV on the wheelie cart. And you're like, oh, it's a great day. We can watch a movie. Um, deaf people don't have that same feeling when they're in an emergency room and the wheelie cart comes in. And now you have this interpreter stuck on this TV and all these hearing people blocking the TV, walking in front of it, can't, you know, make good visual connection with the TV and the person. This brings us full circle to the idea of having to make sure that those who use and book and provide interpreting services are trained as to the different needs for each situation. It's not that simple, is it? No, it's not. And actually, that's a great point. Uh, there's a case out of the 11th Circuit, um, which really addresses this issue. It was a it was deaf people who had a complaint against the uh, medical um, facility that was using video remote interpreting services. They were bringing in interpreters on carts on TV screens. And, you know, technology isn't perfect. Uh, the interpreter would freeze the the video, you know, if the, the connection isn't strong enough, you'd have, we've all seen this, right? We've all been on Zoom for a year now. Um, you know, you have a person freezing, glitching, breaking, you know, their, their communication stops and then pauses and then starts again. Um, a few of the things that the court mentioned when they were ruling on this case were that they directly went to the medical facilities policy and that mm. there was little guidance for the nurses to determine when using these remote um, 
interpreting services was appropriate, right? It's not always appropriate. Um, you know, we can just imagine in an emergency setting, uh, you know, you have people rushing down, it's an emergency, people are moving around very quickly. Somebody's blocking the TV, but asking a question, there's not a lot of time for the interpreter to be like, excuse, you're, you know, could you move out of the way? You're actually blocking the TV. I can't see what's going on. Uh, you know, as having interpreted emergency situations, you know, the interpreter is jumping around too, especially for a visual language, you know, climbing up on things so that you could see the person. You can't do that when you're on a TV in a little box. Uh, and one of the biggest things the court said was that this policy was just barren. It had no indication for the staff to know when video remote interpreting was okay, uh, to, to make decisions. I mean, you had the deaf person complaining that the services were not adequate. Uh, they weren't a reasonable accommodation, but the nurses didn't, I, I mean, some of them I think probably just didn't care, but you know, some of them, cause it just seemed from the, from the information in the case that they just ignored it. But I think a lot of times they just didn't know what else to do. There wasn't any training. They had no guidance. Well, Paul, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much. I love the fact that not only are you an interpreter, but you're an attorney and you still haven't moved away from your roots. And we hope to be, you know, I hope to collaborate with you further on more advocacy work. Thank you very much for being here with us. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. We would like to congratulate all our students that have passed the Federal Court's Interpreter Certification English Written Exam this 2020, starting with Didia Martinez, who took the time to write us this short message. I want to thank the La Mora Institute for helping me prepare for the FCICE Written Exam. I took the written prep course with Ana Toro Greiner and participated in the webinar, Overcoming the Fear of the Federal Certification Exam. All the things I learned from these classes equipped me with the tools and the knowledge to pass this exam. If you're getting prepared for the FCICE oral exam in 2021, send us an email today to be added to a waiting list and be the first to hear once this course is open for enrollment. Classes are limited, so contact us at info at delamorainstitute.com. We hope that this podcast has enriched your journey along this fascinating field of interpretation. Perhaps you learned something new, remember something you had forgotten, or are now encouraged to try something different. If you're watching this on YouTube, please share your comments with us below. And if you're listening to us, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our weekly episodes. Remember, if at first you don't succeed, learn, practice, and try again. Take care.